Well, welcome, and thank you for joining me again for a time in the Word. As today we continue to look at the uh, book of Acts and the history of the church as it unfolded. And today I really want to kind of start by asking you a question, and it's simply this. What do you think is the most frequently asked question of God? In other words, the thing that people ask God most often. I think it is why. I think we ask God why a thousand times over because we wonder why do certain things happen the way they happen? Uh, why does God allow a loved one to leave or to pass away? Or uh, why does he allow a person to have a stroke or to get cancer? Why does he allow a marriage to fail? Or why does he allow us to lose a job? Or why did he put the entire nation in time out uh, until the government decides we're good enough to get out? Um, the answer that the Bible gives to us is that we live in a broken world, and we live in a broken world because it's a world that has been marred and damaged and, in a sense, poisoned by the presence of sin. Sin creates a dynamic that's referred to as entropy in, in scientific terms. Uh, entropy means the gradual decline of matter from a state of order to disorder. In other words, things are basically decaying, and uh, we see it in ourselves. Our bodies age, uh, the buildings around us age, the universe ages. And so it's something that we uh, obviously observe all around us. But that entropy can be accelerated uh, when we yield to certain toxins or the toxin of sin in the world. And rather than resisting it, we follow after it and allow it to become a major influence in our life. Uh, Chuck Swindoll put it this way, I thought was really well said. He said, while it is true that God forgives our sins and wipes the slate clean in terms of our relationship with him, our wrongdoings may have a lingering consequence. He goes on, he says, though every act is forgivable, the effects of some sins are not erasable. And so we find that the sins that we commit can be forgiven by God, but some of them will really leave kind of a, a scar or a mar on our life that we have to negotiate the rest of our days. I've known people who have done things under the influence of drugs or alcohol. Uh, they've damaged themselves or others for the rest of their life, and they have to live with that condition until they leave this present world. They're forgiven in the eyes of God, but they are damaged, they are broken, and they are suffering those consequences. But it's interesting because negative things happening is not always the case of a sin that somebody has committed. I mean, sometimes we actually are victims of things going on in the world. When we get a cold, when we get the flu, when we come down with the Rona, or uh, we simply get cancer or heart disease or, or are in a car accident, the Bible never promises that just because I'm a Christian that I ha have an exemption from the kind of problems that overtake man commonly as, as they live in this world. Um, there is a difference, though, I would say. But Jesus made the point this. He said in Matthew 5.45 that God causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. 
So by virtue of the fact that we are living in this world, even though we may be saved and we may be right in God's eyes, we're still subject as human beings in our physical man in particular to the vagaries of the sinful world that we're part of. But what is different for me in terms of being a believer is what Paul said in Romans 8, 28, where he makes that statement. He says, God basically takes control of the evil and the harmful effects of this world. And he says, God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and those who are called according to his purposes. And so he's inserting in here a, a certain degree of, of empowerment that I have that I can choose to love God and to follow his purposes. And as a consequence, he said, when I do that, that everything that happens will work together for a good end. It also implies uh, in, the, in its silence that I can also choose not to love God even though I'm a believer. I, I can choose not to follow his plan or his purpose for my life. And I'm not exempt thereby from the consequences of those choices. But it's interesting because Jesus was asked this question by his disciples in John chapter 9. They were asking him as they came upon a man who was blind, had been born blind. They said, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? In saying that, they were reflecting, really repeating the prevailing philosophical or theology, theological point of view of the time, the belief, especially amongst the Pharisees, that if you were suffering, it was because you had sinned. There's a direct correlation between sin and suffering. And so in their minds, if you were wealthy, it meant that God was blessing you and therefore you were righteous. If you were poor, you were suffering because you were unrighteous and God was punishing you for your sins. Well, Jesus' response kind of exploded that whole theological notion when he said, neither this man nor his parents sinned. But he goes on to say, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. And this is a powerful statement because when you begin to recognize that there are things that we would consider be highly negative events in our life, that God allows them to come into our life and touch and influence our, our world. And he says, but I've allowed that even though it's a bad thing, that, you, that I might glorify myself in the way that I work in and through your life. Importantly, there's nowhere in the scripture that God promises that you and I will live problem-free lives. And I, I feel like I have to say that because there's at least the inference by many people that there's such a possibility. But we're never promised to be free from suffering or for hardship or from pain. In fact, Jesus made the statement in John 16, He says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. So I can have peace in my heart but then he says, in this world, you'll have trouble. So the source of my peace isn't going to come from everything being tranquil in my life or flowing the way I want. Rather, my peace is going to come in knowing that he has overcome the world. That my life is not defined, in other words, by the circumstances that I experience in this life, but rather defined by his plan, his purpose, especially in terms of eternity. There was no one who spoke about this fact or this reality more fully and more frequently than the Apostle Peter. Um, in fact, uh, we read in his first letter to the churches this repeated comment where he says in chapter 1, verse 6, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. And then he goes on in chapter 2, verse 20 to say, If you suffer for doing good and you endure it, 
This is commendable before God. And again in chapter 3, in verse 14, he says, Even if you suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not therefore fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. And then he adds in verse 17 of that same chapter, It is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. And lastly, in chapter 4, verse 15, he says, If you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. And then in verse 19, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. And of course, the most quoted passage from 1 Peter is, do not think it strange when fiery trials come into your life. Basically, what Peter is saying is that as a Christian, we need to understand that suffering is normative. Now, Suffering is normative for all humanity, and next week I want to explore the whole issue of uh, spiritual and, and, and divine healing, but we need to understand the reason why we're so interested in every culture in the history of mankind has worked on some kind of formulation to eliminate disease and suffering and sickness and all the rest is because that is a normative part of living in this present world. Everybody is subject to it. And as Christians, we shouldn't be surprised when we suffer through different things in our life. Paul or Peter just simply says, you have to understand that is the normal condition of humanity. The thing he said you don't want to do is suffer for doing evil, but if you suffer for doing good, then you need to rejoice. Clearly, he makes the point that suffering is not, near, not necessarily an indication of having done something wrong. Sometimes we suffer even for doing the right thing. I was thinking in our context today about how there are people in the medical fields right now who are, who are contracting the COVID uh, virus because they're doing a good thing. They're going in and treating people who are suffering and, and going through the extreme hardships of that disease. They're putting themselves in harm's way. In fact, the history of Christianity is often marked by that, where the believers, when others were fleeing from plagues, would actually go in and care for the suffering and the dying. And many of them, as a consequence, also contracted the disease of the plague and died as a consequence. Peter says to us, that is a good and noble way to live out our life as Christians. Well, I've always found that the why question that haunts us so much, why do you allow this to happen, is also followed by a second question, and probably a question that's even more frequently asked by people today and throughout history. And that's the question, how long? It's interesting, some 54 times in the Old Testament, uh, that question is asked by different speakers, different writers, different prophets. They say, how long, O Lord? In fact, in Revelation chapter 6, we read about the martyrs who's, uh, who are, are in heaven now, and their voice is rising up from under the throne of God, and they're saying, how long, O Lord? That is, how long are you going to wait till you bring judgment upon the world because of its many, many sins? We also find that the psalmist of all the writers in the Old Testament asked the question over 20 times, more frequently than anybody else. I mean, Psalm 6.3 is a perfect example where David says, how long, O Lord, how long? And he says, my soul is in anguish. It's one of those simple realities that 
you know, Jesus may be a bridge over troubled waters, but it doesn't mean that you're never going to get drenched. And so you need to understand that you're going to be experiencing what everybody else experiences. Being a Christian doesn't exempt you from the COVID virus. And being a Christian doesn't mean, or contracting the virus doesn't mean that you have sinned or failed in some particular way. Now, the psalmist wasn't alone in asking that question. I mean, Haggai struggled with it just as well, and Habakkuk, excuse me, the prophet, struggled with the same question when he asked in the beginning of his, his uh, prophecy. In the second verse, he says, How long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you, violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and conflict abounds. He goes on to say, the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. We're living in a time, in part because of the abundance of information that's available to us, that we're beginning to see up front and personal the paralysis of the legal system and the roving of injustice where things that are patently wrong and evil never get dealt with because powerful people have the ability to pull the right levers. It's interesting so that what Haggai, or excuse me, Habakkuk was going through wasn't unique to his time. It's something that people have struggled with throughout all history, the fact that powerful people often are in a position to oppress other people. But it's interesting how God replies to his complaint. He gets an answer, but not an answer he wants. The Lord says to him, watch and be utterly amazed, for I am going to do something in your days that you would not believe even if you were told. That's why I say sometimes the response that God gives to our questions are are not the ones we want and they're not the ones we like. What Habakkuk certainly discovered was that the answer was very unpalatable because as he's complaining about the iniquity of Judah, the kingdom of Judah, God says, I'm going to address the, the rampant, unbridled iniquity of the people of Judah. By how? By raising an even more wicked and brutal Babylonian empire to crush and destroy them and to carry their way into captivity where they will remain for the next 70 years until they fully fully come to a place of repentance. One of his contemporary prophets, the prophet Ezekiel, tells us what God was looking for. In fact, he repeats 22 times in that prophecy Then, when these things happen, then you will know that I am the Lord. So here we see God bringing terrible consequences on people's lives in order to create an awareness that he is God and we are not. That he is the Lord Almighty and we are not. That we need to honor him instead of striving to live to honor ourselves. Someone once noted that uh, God is never late. Then he said, nor is he ever early, which is always my frustration, but he's always right on time. You see, God didn't part the Red Sea until Pharaoh was within striking distance. Um, He didn't part the Jordan River until the priests were putting their feet right on the surface of the water. Uh, The walls of Jericho didn't fall down the first time they walked around the city, but they fell at exactly the moment in which God ordained that they should fall. 
And in the same way, God doesn't solve your problems. He doesn't fix your debt. He doesn't lift your burden. He doesn't heal your body until, as, as uh, Isaiah put it, my word goes forth out of my mouth and accomplishes the purpose for which I sent it. In other words, God has a plan and a purpose. And he says, these things will continue until I've finished doing what I want to do. See, for God... Time is merely a commodity. It's, it's a construct. It's a, it's a product of his creation. He is the master of time, and therefore he manages and controls it as he wants. It's interesting because we find that he can shrink time or he can stretch time. He can make time stop. He can make it start. He can make it speed up. He can make it even go backwards. In fact, we have two incidents in the scripture where God actually made time go back. First to Joshua and the second time to Hezekiah. So God makes it very clear that he is the Lord and the master of time. Uh, And he says it in Psalm 90 verse 4. He says, a thousand years in your sight, this is Moses writing, are about yesterday when it's past, as a watch in the night. In other words, time is not a factor in anything about God's doing or his nature. 2 Peter 3.8, Peter says, with the Lord, a day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. Some people carry that to an interpretive extreme. He's just simply saying, time is not a factor for God. It is for us, but not for him. Isaiah put it very simply in the reason why. In Isaiah 57.15, God says that he inhabits eternity. So that God may manifest himself in time, he may control time, he can permeate all of time, but time has no hold on him. So we could never accuse God of being slow in his response to our struggles, because as Peter goes on in 2 Peter 3.9 to say, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So we might ask, why did God create time? Well, he had a purpose in it. He always has a purpose. And the psalmist tells us, David, or excuse me, Moses writing in Psalm 90, verse 12 says, teach us to number our days aright that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Interesting wording there, isn't it? Teach us to number our days aright. In other words, we can count time and get it all wrong. Oh, the calendar may be correct, the numerals might be correct, the the metrics might be right, but the reality is that we're not understanding the times that we're living in. Help us to begin to look at the time of our events and to see them through your eyes that we might operate with wisdom in dealing with the problems that we face every day. You see, there's three reasons why God created time. Number one, it's to give us a marker, a way of keeping track that we might know the difference between the beginning and the end. I mean, God basically said that in the creation hymn when he said he he created the stars and the moon and the sun and all those things so that we could mark time. But that's the whole point is it's, it's able to realize that there is a timeliness to my existence. And so secondly, it's that we might understand within that concept of timeliness that we are not eternal beings, that we are temporary beings, at least in terms of our physical man. We're short-termers. In fact, James asks that question in James 4.14. He says, what is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Now, 
Which brings me to the third reason why I think God created time. It's so that we would use our time wisely, that we would spend it well. Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 12, and he was probably nearing the end of his earthly life when he wrote this, but he says, Remember your Creator in the days of your youth, before the days of trouble come. In the context, the days of trouble is when you begin to get old and your body begins to fall apart and you suffer the consequences of aging. He said that's the time. That's not the time to get religious. The time to become religious is before those days come so that you can live everything up until that time well and look back on your years and say, it is well with my soul. He goes on, he says, here's the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God, keep his commandments, For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. So there's a perspective about time that he is giving us. That we need to see time as this place in which really we're living out a plan that God has created or we're not living that out. Either way, there's a certain accountability that comes at the end of time. Now, what got me thinking about all of these things from the passage that we opened with today? Well, it was that opening sentence when it says, Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace, a season of peace, a period in which they were free to do what God had called them to do. That time didn't just happen circumstantially, as we might think. It was created by God. And you see that by just taking a a brief review of the historical backstory of what is taking place in that statement. You see, prior to this, quote-unquote, time of peace, the church um, was going through tremendous persecution. Uh, Violent and determined men were were pursuing the Christians. Um, Men like Pilate, who was the prefect of of Judea at the time. That means basically he was the governing authority uh, appointed there by Rome. And and of course he had killed Christ and he had no concern what the church or what the, uh, the Sanhedrin did to Christians thereafter. There was Ananias and Caiaphas, the high priests, um, who controlled the temple and everything basically that went on in the day-to-day life of the Jewish community. And then there was Paul, or at least at that time Saul of Tarsus, who was the most determined and had been amazingly empowered by all three of these above governing authorities to execute and to crush the church out of existence. That was his entire purpose, his entire mission, was to wipe Christianity off the face of the earth. Now, interesting, he may have been one of the first to to go after the church this way. He certainly wasn't going to be the last. But then suddenly, and very suddenly, all of that changed. As we look at the history, what took place at that same time that Paul became a follower of Jesus? Well, first of all, Emperor Claudius, who was no friend of the Jews or of the Christians, he suddenly died. He came to an end. And interestingly, he is replaced by a a young man by the name of Caligula, who in the beginning turned out to be a fairly good emperor until he went completely insane. More on that story later on. Pilate, after the death of Claudius with a new emperor, he's immediately recalled to Rome and he disappears from the pages of history. Some, you know, one 
Christian historian, uh, uh, said that he committed suicide, but we have no real evidence that he did that or not. He just goes away. He's not a factor anymore. Ananias drops dead, and the prefect Marcellus, who replaced Pilate, deposed Caiaphas and put an, another man on the, in the position of the high priest. But most significantly, Paul, the chief persecutor, became a Christian. He got saved, and the persecution immediately ended. Almost in an instant, the power structure of Judea changed, proving once again, just as the, uh, as the psalmist exclaimed, no one can exalt a man. It is God who judges. And then he says, he brings down one and he exalts another. It reminds me of an experience I had uh, a few years ago when I was flying back from Russia and I'd spent the night in Amsterdam. And when I got to my hotel that evening and I checked in, I turned on the CNN news in the hotel in my room and it reported basically the foregone conclusion that Hillary Clinton was going to be the next president of the United States. I mean, they were pretty jubilant about that and I had kind of expected that would be the result anyway. So I went to bed not giving it much more thought. I woke up and the next morning turned on the TV and those same broadcasters were almost in tears and I couldn't find anywhere on any other channel an explanation of what was going on. So I called home and I talked to my wife and she said that uh, Donald Trump had won the presidency. And it just struck me at that moment, I was saying there how quickly God can change things in an instant. Now I know that some of you are saying, well, I don't think God had anything to do with it. I respect your right to be completely wrong about that. The fact of the matter is that God is in control of those kind of things. He raises up, he brings another one down. And the men who forget that they hold their seats by the grace and the mercy of God are the ones who become the most arrogant and abusive of their authority and who will fall the most quickly. Well, the bottom line is God wanted the church to have a time of peace. And so he replaced the men who stood in the way of that peace. What a glorious testimony. Well, it's in this new season of peace and freedom uh, that we find Peter is no longer laying low in Jerusalem, waiting for a knock on the door to carry him away, but instead it says Peter traveled about the country. I mean, there's a, a confidence, a freedom. It says the church was beginning to grow in the grace of God. Their reverence and fear for God was kind of over the top. They were so amazed at how God could change the circumstance so quickly. This would prove really to be the last season of flourishing for the church in Jerusalem. After this period is over, they'll begin to go through a lot of suffering. In just seven years, uh, Herod's grandson, Herod Agrippa I, will be appointed by Emperor Caligula to be the new uh, king of Judea. He gives him the, king of his grand, uh, the kingdom of his grandfather, and he's an interesting character. We'll get into that in chapter 12. Kind of a real interesting guy, but he becomes a decided enemy of Christianity, to win the favor and the approval probably uh, of, the, uh, of the temple leadership and the Sanhedrin, he goes after Christianity with a vengeance. He decapitates James. He arrests Peter with the intention of doing the same. But I don't want to spoil the story for you, so we'll wait till chapter 12. But I'm pretty certain the apostles understood how this time of freedom was so limited and they needed to take full advantage of it. And I think that's kind of a concept we need to have that when, when we're in a time where we have freedom to, to do what we can do for God, we need to seize that moment. We need to really redeem that time, if you will. So that what Peter does is just the very thing that he had witnessed Jesus do for years. 
He began traveling from city to town to village, preaching the gospel and and teaching within all the Christian synagogues. As Jesus had promised, we find also, he said in Matthew 16, remember, go into all the world and preach the good news. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will place their hands on sick people and they will get well. And this is exactly what we find happening. The route Peter followed was kind of a straight line, if you will, if you can see on the map, a straight line from the Jerusalem, which is in the mountains of Judea, straight down towards the coast to Joppa, which is really where modern-day Tel Aviv is today. These towns and villages he went to, though, were exclusively... Jewish communities. There is no effort at this point or even understanding at this point that the gospel was meant for the Gentiles as well as for the Jews. And so they, there were none of them incorporated into the church. But it was undoubtedly uh, towns like Lydda where he stops just 25 miles out of Jerusalem, basically a day's walk, that many of the persecutions, persecuted Christians had probably fled when Saul began to wreak havoc on the churches. And it was there while he's ministering to the church in Lydda that Paul, Peter encounters a man named Aeneas, who he says is a paralytic who had been bedridden for eight years. Now, speaking almost exactly the same words that Jesus used when he healed the paralytic in Mark chapter 9, Peter gives this command. Aeneas, he says, Jesus Christ heals you, get up and take care of your, or take care of your mat, And immediately Aeneas got up and all those who lived in Lydda and Sharon, these are the flatlands that are the agricultural heartland of Israel, they saw him and they turned to the Lord. As news spread about this notable miracle, the messengers came from Joppa just 12 miles away. And they came to fetch Peter. I'm sure the news of, of, of Ahaneus's healing had reached them and they went running to Joppa to get Peter because there was a saint named Tabitha in their community who was still alive probably when they left, but she was gravely ill. And what Peter does is when he gets there, he finds that she has passed away. But again, what, what are we seeing? We're seeing that the time of death is not a barrier to the power of God. God continually wanted to reiterate, death does not control me, I control death. I talk to people all the time who are wondering about the hour of their death and, and, and trying to really forecast, well, how long do I have to live? Over the years, I've had the honor of, of uh, ministering to people who are uh, considered to be terminal uh, by doctors. And I found amazingly that many of them die much quicker than the doctors had estimated, and most of them linger on a lot longer than the doctors thought they would. And it just always confirms to me that man does not control life or death. That's in the hands of God, and that's what the Lord says. He says, I give life, and I take it away. So to worry about when I'm going to die is a total waste of time because the only one who knows is God. Even the angels in heaven, I don't think, know when my last day is until they get you know, the, the post-it note that tells them to come and snatch me off the planet. But the bottom line is our lives are in the hand of God. And that's why it says that Peter, he got down on his knees when he arrived and he prayed. Turning toward the dead woman, he said, Tabitha. Tabitha is, a, is an Aramaic name that means the gazelle or the deer. Uh, she's also called Dorcas, but that would be the Greek name. So it's really both are for a gazelle or a deer. So it's basically the same name in two different languages. But he says to her, get up. 
The same words Jesus used when he raised people from the dead. And she opened her eyes and seeing Peter, she sat up and he says he took her by the hand and he helped her to her feet. And this became known all over Joppa and many people believed in the Lord. Now, as we look at both these cases, apart from the fact that they're miraculous healings and even a, 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 in a sense a, a reanimation, a raising from the dead, they have an intended purpose and that purpose is stated to us clearly. Many people believed in the Lord. And again, we'll explore this more next week when we get into the dynamics of, of healing. But you see, next week I want to continue talking about this, but right now I want to stay with this theme of time. Because our relationship with time is pretty precarious. Um, I wonder how many times Aeneas may have wondered and prayed, Lord, why did I get this disease? And why am I crippled like, with this paralysis? And how long, oh Lord, will I have to be in this condition? I mean, I, I keep on thinking about being bedridden for eight years. Now, I say respectfully, I know that there are probably people listening to this who have been bedridden that long or, or longer. But the whole question, and, and that's the reality, the fact that you're asking how long, Lord, or why am I in this situation, or why don't you do something different? Uh, seems to be a pretty common prayer and concern of those who ask those questions and find themselves in that situation. I wonder how frustrated the messengers must have been when they finally reached Peter and brought him back and they got the report that it was too late, that she had already passed away. And I wonder about what was it that caused Peter to, to go up into that room by himself and to get down to his knees and begin to pray. He, you don't see him just assuming that she's going to be healed. It's something that I think had to come to him by divine revelation. But the point is this, that our perception and, and our measure of the meaning of time is something that's wholly arbitrary. I mean, it's based largely on this micro slice of, of time, matter, and space that we're able to comprehend. That, you know, I, I'm 70 years of age and I realize that this is a very short period of time in the bigger scheme of things. But faith realizes that we do not essentially dwell in the constructs of time, that we have taken on a certain eternity. When, when Paul says to the Ephesians in that first chapter that at our conversion we were caught up into the heavenly places with Christ Jesus, we're seated with him right now. In other words, there's a place set aside for me at his table that was created for me the moment I believed in him. In fact, maybe even before, because he foreknew that I would come to him. But what he also tells us about God, that not only does he dwell in that eternity, but he penetrates it and he permeates all of time. And just as he is perfect in everything that he, has do he does, he is also perfect in his timing. Even, and especially when, that timing doesn't match up with our timing. How many times I've heard people say, this happened at the worst time. And from a human perspective, all I can agree, do is agree. Yeah, I, I wish it hadn't happened now. I wish it never would have happened at all. But it happened at the worst times. I was just, as I was listening to the news last night of a, a young 20-year-old man who was killed in a motorcycle accident. And my wife and I just sat there and grieved, even to the point of even in tears, this morning as we were praying, because it just hit us. Not only have they lost their child, but right now they can't even have a funeral. They can't even go to a funeral and, and grieve together as a family, which I'm sorry, just seems 
ridiculously cruel and over the top. But that's my opinion. What do I know, right? But God's timing. Right now, all of us are living in this collective how long moment. We, we want this whole season to end and to return to whatever normal is going to look like and probably be redefined. And I think it's important for us to remember that God's response to our question of how long is that the Lord is not slow, as Peter said, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. I'm convinced that we're going through this season because God is trying to awaken the world and not just America to awaken the world to their need for a Christ. It, it forces people to face the, the temporariness of their own existence upon this planet, that there's an eternity that lives beyond it. And regardless of what their philosophic or theological view of eternity is or whether it exists or not, that day is coming and it's coming for them and they will have to enter into whatever comes afterwards. And what he's telling me, you and I as Christians, that we need to rest in the goodness of the Lord and to trust in his good purposes in making us wait. As Paul said to the Galatians in Galatians 6, 9, he says, let us not be weary in doing good. For at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we don't give up. Don't give up. Don't become weary. Wait for the proper time. Here again, we have that word time, season, kairos time. That right moment in which God has foreordained all these things. Wait for it and continue to do good as often as you can until that come, time comes. And then you will reap the reward of your patience. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, I ask that you would help us to have a renewed view of our time and the time we're in and that we might look at time with a different perspective and a different lens. That We would not see it as the enemy that takes away things from us but rather we would see it as the wondrous way in which you have chosen to work in our lives. The reality is that if we're living in eternity then our sins would be eternal Time becomes my free friend because time allows me to repent of what was in the past and receive grace in the present and to have hope in the future. I pray, Lord, that we would just have a new and refreshed view of time. In Jesus' name, amen.